0: Well, good evening. It is good to be together. Amen. Well, we're going to do our part two of last week's message. There's a lot that we were looking at, and I wanted to leave this second half of this message for this week, because last week uh, we got about halfway through, and I realized, you know, no reason to rush. We were talking about being willing to live for God. Being willing to live for God. That's the theme of this book, 1 Peter. Live for God. And we have to be willing to do so. Well, last week we looked at the fact that we are called to follow Christ's example in suffering. To follow Christ's example in suffering, we had to know what he suffered. And so the week before that, we looked at his suffering. We looked at the example of Christ's suffering. And then last week, we talked about following that example. This evening, we're going to uh, finish out this section. Uh, before we get into chapter 4, verse 12, where we start to talk about being willing to suffer for being a Christian, we're going to talk about following uh, Christ's commands, his commands in suffering. That is being obedient in the midst of suffering. And, and, and you know, it, it's amazing because when we suffer and we go through difficult times, we don't always feel that we have to be obedient, or we sometimes give ourselves the excuse to be disobedient but well, we need to continue to be obedient to Christ's commands. And so this evening in First Peter and in chapter 4 and in verse 7, we'll begin there, but before we do, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for our time of praise and worship and all that you do in and through our lives. I thank you for those who are here for the first time and those who are visiting and Lord, we're grateful that we can gather together freely here to worship and to praise without restriction, to lift up your name and to study your word, to fellowship, to pray for one another, to serve one another in love. So we ask that you continue to bless our time together, bless this study, bless our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are several commands we're going to look at this evening, and the first is this, to be prepared for his return. Now with the world and the state that it's in, and you often hear me talk about this uh, it is very easy to become depressed, discouraged, despondent, to start to think that somehow everything's out of control to the point where God isn't in control. We've talked a lot about this on Wednesdays and Sundays over the last few weeks. God is firmly in control of all that is taking place in our world. That of course, doesn't mean He approves of everything that is taking place in our world. By his predetermined will and purpose, he allows evil and wickedness to continue to a point, and until a time, in such a time as he returns to judge the living and the dead. And so we start with what Peter shares here. He says, the end of all things is near. Now, if you were to just say that, that, that might sound like the end of the world, like, like a very somber message. It might sound like a really discouraging and depressing message. The end of all things is near. And yet, the end of all things is near. You go to the next sentence. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So you see, we're given several imperatives or commands. Uh, because the end of all things is near. Now, when we say the end of all things is near, that's in the context of what we've been talking about, and that is this wicked world, the wickedness in this world, and all those that disobey God's word and defy it, and defy him. The end of all of that is near. Can I hear an amen? My, my comfort comes in knowing that God will intervene in our world At that moment that he has already decided he will. There's nothing I can do to make it happen quicker. If there was, I'd stand on my head and spit wooden nickels. I would do whatever I could to make that happen. But I can't. It's God's will. And no one actually knows, only the Father in heaven. We really don't know when this will happen. We know that it will happen. But that doesn't take away from us this command by Christ, through the power of the Spirit, and through his servant Peter, to be prepared for his return. Now, what does that mean? It means to maintain a sense of urgency. Because the end of all things is near, we should be living as if at any moment the Lord will return. Now, if you went to sleep over the last year or two, and you woke up and you'd say, What happened? When I went to sleep, things were very different. I woke up a year and a half later, and the world is in chaos. But that's not true. Well, the world is experiencing the chaos that it creates, but God is in control. We need to maintain a sense of urgency. You may have, a few years ago, been able to sort of go to sleep and tell yourself, well, you know, I'm not sure the Lord is coming back soon, but you can't do that now. You have to look around and wake up, for your redemption draws near. It's very obvious to anyone with eyes to see. We need to be able to see. We need to be able to open our eyes. We need to be able to understand what's actually happening around us. And so much of what the Bible talks about in the last days is beginning to happen. The foundation of some of those things is already happening in our world. But rather than being concerned or worried or anxious, maintain a sense of urgency. Each day draws us closer to our Lord's return, and we must live in the expectancy that comes from waiting for him to appear. Have you ever been waiting for someone? You sat outside their house, you said you were going to pick them up on the way to church maybe, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you see the light turn off and they're like, oh good, they'll be out in a minute, and you're waiting, and finally, they come out and they get into the car and say, hey, what took so long? You know, we we live in that state of anticipation. It may have only been two minutes, but it felt like an hour and a half. Why? Because you were living at that moment in a state of anticipation. We are living as Christians today in this world in a state of urgency, with a sense of urgency, in a state of anticipation, longing for and looking for Christ's return. So of course it seems like it needs to happen like three days ago. But isn't that better than going to sleep? Isn't that better than, as the Bible says, don't slumber... Don't become slack in believing the Lord's promises. Don't don't begin to think he delays his coming, but rather look forward and look up for your redemption draws near. I would rather be like that person waiting in the car looking than being the person that goes to sleep and says, take your time. We must, as it says here, we must realize the end of all things is near. And I'm really happy about that. Therefore, we must be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Let's talk about what that means. Being self-controlled. What that really means is don't allow yourself to become distracted. I'm going to tell you something. Until about a year and a half ago, most of the church was very distracted by other things. Even politics. I mean, we got distracted from things. Actually, over the last decade, I think, the church has become very distracted There are many things that can draw your attention away from Christ and away from his word. It means to be clear-minded. It means to be of a sound mind. There's a shortage today of those with sound minds. It means to be in your right mind, to exercise self-control, to think soberly about yourself and to curb your passions. It has been, wow, a discipline of a magnitude that I have never, ever experienced in my life to learn to curb my passions. And by that, I mean my anger, the things that I'm upset about, the things I see going on in our world. It would be very easy for me to just say, well, we're not going to study the Bible tonight. We're just going to rail on about how things are in our country. You'd probably enjoy it. I would enjoy doing it. That's not why I'm here. That's not why we're here. So I'm asking the Lord, and I listen back to the message to make sure I'm being obedient. I ask the Lord to temper me sharing some of the things that we share in application of God's Word to make sure that I don't get off base, that I don't get on a tangent and forget about what I'm really here to do, which is to preach the Word of God, to teach the Word of God and preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To the To the the state that we are in, I can only say there are times when I'll share some of the things we're going through in order to make a point and to apply God's word. But I'm not here to preach out of the newspaper, politics, or anything else. But how important it is now to be self-controlled. For me, that's the greatest temptation. For me to give myself over to my passions, my anger, uh, the things that upset me, the things that I see. I really, you know, everywhere I go, everyone sits down. At first, they start talking about all the things we're going through in our world. Everyone does. And and if you're on one side or the other, it starts an argument. Listen, to be self-controlled means to be able to put those things aside as necessary. Sometimes you need to talk about these things. But as necessary, to make the first things first, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and his word. So I'm asking God to help me with that. Because to be self-controlled means to be sober. You ever seen someone who's not sober? They're not in control. They can't walk. They can't talk. They don't know how to act properly. Because they're not sober. We need to be sober. To be calm is what the word means. Calm. Cool. Collected in spirit. You know, you can make your case a lot more clearly if you maintain self-control. Now, I'm all about the truth but we have to be about the truth and love. And in order to experience this level of control, as as we prepare ourselves for his return, we also need to be fervent in prayer. And that's what we see here mentioned. Be clear-minded and self-controlled. Now, why is that? Clear-minded. We've talked about what it means to be clear-minded. We've talked about what it means to be uh, self-controlled. Clear-minded is to not be distracted. Self-controlled is to actually be in control of your response and your passions. But the reason is so that you can pray. If you're giving yourself over to your passions, you're not going to be able to pray. Have you ever noticed that emotions, strong emotions in particular, get in the way of prayer? If I'm angry and someone says pray, and I'm like, pray about what? Passions, strong passions get in the way. Why? Because passion, emotion, it's fleshly. It may be justified, but it's still fleshly. So as we control ourselves, as we are clear-minded, not distracted, we are empowered to pray. We need to pray through every circumstance and situation that we encounter. We need to pray so that we can find God's peace in prayer. You know the person that I listen to? The person who's at peace with the situation we're in right now. Oh, that doesn't mean you agree with it. But you're at peace because you know God is in control. You're at peace because you're in prayer, so that when you speak the truth, you speak the truth in love, in a self-controlled way, without being distracted by the things of this world, you're able to preach the truth of God's word and the gospel, that Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, coming again to judge the living and the dead, and all who put their hope and their trust in him, all who receive him, to those who believe on his name are given the right to be called the children of God. That is, they're saved from their sins for all eternity. Can I hear an amen? That's the gospel. We don't need to complicate it. You need to give your heart to Jesus Christ. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's really why I believe God still has us here on this crazy planet and in this culture. So fervent in prayer. That's what you're going to see. And that's the first verse. We get to the second one we've read. Notice above all, that that sort of implies that this is even more important than the things we've talked about already. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Well, we just talked about truth, because being prepared for his return requires you to have that sense of urgency about what's going to take place soon, and not being distracted, prayerful, uh, clear-minded, all of the things we've talked about, self control, but even more important than those things is that you're loving. Now, here's where I think we've all failed, if we're going to be honest. Many times when we have the truth, when we're right about things, and we see things more clearly than others, we oftentimes give ourselves the, a pass on being loving You notice something that Jesus never did? He was always loving, never gave himself a pass. Even when he was righteously angry about the things of God, you could never, ever describe his actions or his words as anything but loving. Now, I got a long way to go. And so do you, I'm sure. How do we deal with that? Well, we've already talked about some of the things we can do in making ourselves uh, ready for the Lord's return. But here it says, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, loving one another deeply, we're talking about agape love. It's the unconditional love of God. It's different than brotherly love. It's different than love that's deserved or even earned. It's a different kind of love. It's a love that is given to those that don't deserve it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That love is agape love. So when we talk about agape love, when we talk about, that's just the Greek word, but when we talk about that type of unconditional love, this is the most important command that God has given us. There is no doubt about the new command that he gave us, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all the world will know, all men will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said. So above all, love one another deeply. Now the word deeply, it can be used to describe the stretching out of a hand, earnestly, fervently, and intensely reaching out to someone else. So when we say loving one another deeply, that's what we're talking about. It's not just sitting here and saying, yeah, bro, I love you. I love you, man. No, it's not that. It's reaching out and doing something about it, responding. And there's no greater love than you can have than lay down your life for someone. But one of the things we do is we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God with those we love. Now, I, I did a memorial service yesterday. I officiated one and uh, I prayed. I prayed. The night before about exactly what scripture I was going to share. And because of this and because of all we're going through in our world, I had a sense, a profound sense of urgency. And I said, you know, who knows? The Lord could come back Wednesday. The Lord could come back next week. He could could come back a year from now. And these people may never get to hear the gospel. So, you know, I just went for it. I mean, what were they going to do, throw stones at me? What was the worst that could happen? They could yell at me and tell me to leave. So I share the gospel from Romans 10, where whoever calls upon the name, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I share the truth of the gospel very bluntly, very very lovingly. And you know what? People thanked me for my words of encouragement. Now, I don't know whether that means that everyone got saved, but I do know that they received the truth. And I'm going to tell you the reason they received the truth, because it is the truth, their hearts are open, but also because I went out of my way to be loving. I reached out. I made it clear that I was there to comfort them. See, people need to know you care. They won't care what you know until they know you care. You and I, we need to earn that right to share the truth. We need to prove to people we really love them. And that's what we're being told here, to love one another deeply. It means to stretch out the hand, to earnestly and fervently and intensely show your love. And that opens up the door for you, for me, for us, to share the truth. Another thing that I find this interesting, because I don't think it's our nature to do this. Our nature is to expose people's faults. If someone criticizes you, and you know something about someone who criticized you, you're likely to say, yeah, but I'm not as bad as you. Remember that time? But yet we're told here that love covers a multitude of sins. A multitude is a lot. You could use the word multitude when you describe the stars or the grains of sand on the sea. A multitude of sins is covered by love. What does that mean? Can you and I just say, oh, don't worry about it, therefore you're forgiven? No. But what it means is that we, in love, allow others to be forgiven through the person of Jesus Christ. We don't hold a grudge if God forgives them. And if they're not yet forgiven, it doesn't mean we need to expose their sins either. Yeah, I think we're so quick to point out, well, you're a sinner. My wife and I, years ago, years ago, probably 30-something years ago, went to Virginia Beach. And it's a very Christian-y area. I'm just going to say it that way. I don't know what that means exactly, but... And we were walking down the street, and I saw this Christian witnessing, and his witness was telling this, I don't know, troubled person that his daddy was the devil, and that he was a sinner and going to hell. And I thought, well, that's... Isn't that wonderful? Covering a multitude of sins is the exact opposite of that. It's possible for us as Christians to cover over a life that's filled with sin. Treat someone with dignity, with respect, even if they don't deserve it. You know, here's the thing. To cover over is to hide. It's not to pretend they don't have sin. It's to hide, to veil, or to remove the knowledge of something. It's to show mercy. It's to be gracious. It's God's love. Agape hides sin. The Bible says that God casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. He hides them behind his back. He separates them as far as the east is from the west. God is not looking for your sin. He wishes to remember it no more. And through the person of Jesus Christ, that's possible. But what is it with us that we keep lists? We're being told how to love. We're being told to follow Christ's commands, and especially in suffering. Remember, this is all in the context of suffering in Christ. See, it's one thing to say, oh, love your brother. What do you do when your brother is screaming obscenities at you and telling you that your life doesn't matter because of your skin color or or that you're a racist simply because you won't wear their color? What do you do when you're being treated in this way? You love one another deeply. That's hard, isn't it? You're like, yeah, pastor, I kind of do that. I just punch one another, you know, deeply. No, 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 no. We don't punch people. We love people. <laughs> you know, you, you, you got to, I, I need God's help. That's why we have to be fervent in prayer. So here's, here's the thing. To cover over is to hide. We can do this by lovingly, lovingly overlooking one another's faults and failures. That's how we should treat one another. As we love and forgive others, God lovingly forgives us. Or have you forgotten what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6? If you don't forgive the sins of others, neither will your sins be forgiven. We have to be merciful, gracious towards others because that is how God treats us. It's what he's called us and commanded us to do. To cover over is to allow the grace of God to apply the blood of Christ to our lives. And to cover over is to to be forgiven by God in the person of Jesus Christ for all eternity. We cover over because Christ is covered over us. You know something? In the Old Testament, the word for atonement meant exactly that, to cover over, to hide, to obscure. In the New Testament, the word for atonement means to abolish, to take away. And Christ has taken away the sins of the world through his death on the cross Not just covered it over, but what we're being encouraged to do is something that we can do, not something that only God can do. See, only God can take away your sins. We're being told to cover them over. And in very practical terms, it means to treat people with love, mercy, and grace. Okay, we got that? Well, what does that mean? Well, you know what? It means putting your faith into practice. And one of the greatest ways in the ancient world, and even today, that you can show love to someone is through hospitality. Verse 9 says this. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. You ever had to invite somebody over and the whole time you're like, look at that guy. He's going back for seconds. I hope not. I hope not. I hope that wasn't your heart. Grumbling as you do something, you know, you're supposed to be doing something nice and the whole time you're thinking, ah, how long do I got to feed these people? No. Hospitality is done without grumbling. And what we learn here is we're to be generous. Imagine that. In a world that is cruel and cold and brutal, we're called to be hospitable with one another. That is to be generous to our guests, to love those that we don't know yet. See, that's the problem. We approach it like, I don't know if I like this person. And yet what we're being told here as we suffer is to offer love to people we don't know yet. I know this is hard. That's why we started with prayer. You know, this, being generous to your guests and loving those that you don't know yet, was a requirement for all the servant leaders in the early church. If you read the requirements for leadership in 1 Timothy and Titus, that's exactly right. They all were called the hospitality. This was an expectation for all church members as well, talked about in Romans and in Hebrews. It was necessary for practical reasons to provide for traveling ministers and leaders And it was necessary to provide meeting space. If someone wasn't hospitable, it wasn't like they had churches. Someone didn't open up their home, they couldn't gather. The exhortation, the encouragement seems to have been lost on the majority of Christians today, because let's be honest, we can be very inhospitable if we're not careful. We need to work at this. We need to challenge ourselves. You know, rather than just going home on a Sunday, invite someone to lunch. Pick up the tab. Imagine that. Look to do things for others that, that will affect their hearts. You know, you want to sit down and talk to someone about their salvation, but, you know, if you invite them out to lunch, you know, pay for their meal. And, and, and you're not doing it like in a bait-and-switch kind of a way. You're just showing love and you're being hospitable. They might actually know that what you're telling them is true and listen to you and respond. See, one of the things I love about our church family here is you guys are so hospitable when people come in here that they generally come back. That's, that's a good thing. Imagine the alternative. I like the message. I like the worship. But the people were so mean and nasty, I'd never go back there. You know, imagine that. That could be ridiculous, but it, it, I imagine it happens at times in certain churches. So brotherly love is what we're talking about now in being hospitable. It's a little different than unconditional love. Brotherly love. We're we're supposed to have brotherly love for those in the church. This type of love can only be experienced through healthy relationships. See, a church without healthy relationships, can it really be described as the house of God? Healthy relationships is everything. I mean, this congregation these congregations that Peter is writing to had already loved each other in this way. He said so in chapter one. They simply needed to maintain those relationships without complaining, without grumbling. It really breaks my heart when I hear somebody say, well, I don't really like that person. I went out with them and, you know, uh," that's grumbling. Being generous doesn't mean waiting for that person to reciprocate. Hospitality isn't given to the person who proved that they're worthy of it. It's God's love exemplified in action. And that's what we're talking about tonight. So to experience church as a family not just a community, but a family, we must love each other as siblings. Now, it's not just brotherly love for those within the church. It's also hospitality for those outside the church. Again, I'm very glad to say as the pastor of this church that that happens on Sundays and on Wednesdays. People feel welcome because they are welcome. And all of you guys do a great job of showing people how welcome they are. I know that. I get emails. I get texts. People communicate to me. They tell me they felt welcome. We've even had some people come here that are not Christians and, you know, maybe had some sin that needed to be covered over that felt welcomed. That's a good thing. That's following Christ's commands. That's being loving in a world that's short on love. Hospitality for those outside the church, it's caring for strangers. You know, what's sad in our world over the last year or so is that we have so allowed ourselves as a culture not everyone to be infected with fear that we don't really reach out beyond our own little what we call the bubble i'm not so crazy about that term the bubble because oh they might have the cooties they 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 might be not like me and and yet we're called in the bible in god's word to do that exact thing to care for strangers still considered a social and moral responsibility today. In fact, it's especially true in the Middle East. Provides for the practical needs of travelers in need of safety and protection, did in the past, does today. Abraham and Sarah showed hospitality to the Lord and two angels when they showed up on their doorstep, if you will, outside their tent. They were certainly much more than they appeared to be. It was the Lord and two angels. And this is mentioned because it was a reminder to always remember to show hospitality to others. And that's the command. To reach our community, though, remember, we're a church family, but there is a community around us. To reach our community, we must care for those outside of our church family. So when someone comes in here and they're from the area or just they're joining us for worship, and maybe, you know, they're not Christians or maybe they were invited, that's the person we really need to make feel welcome. We need to make sure that they know they're welcome, that we're glad to have them, They're not feeling judged or alienated in any way, and that they know that we're here for them if they need us. And that's what Peter is telling the church, the suffering church, by the way. Everything we do in the name of Christ should be done without grumbling. I I like to say this way, if you don't really want to do it, don't do it. You know, if if you can't do it with a smile on your face, (laughs) don't do it at all. (laughs) Well, there's a Spanish saying I'm not going to mention, but basically says, you know, if you're not going to do it with a good attitude, don't do it at all. Don't even do it. Or if you're going to do it with a bad attitude, don't do it. That's the actual literal translation. Well, you know, we get to this next section, and I'm, I'm glad we have the time to go through this because this has to do with spiritual gifts now now, there is a, a misnomer or a misunderstanding about spiritual gifts. We tend to think of, oh cool, i got this ability, this spiritual gifting, and you know it 's all about me. How's this going to benefit me? you know I, I can teach god 's word. how am I going to make that work for me oh i 'm a good speaker or I can serve or I could do this or I could do that, and i 'm a good administrator, and therefore. You know, wow, this is my spiritual gift accent on the personal pronoun, first-person personal pronoun, my. Listen, listen, we're going to learn something about spiritual gifts tonight. Look at verse 10. And by the way, the word for gifts or spiritual gifts in the Greek is charisma. That's why we say if you believe in spiritual gifts, you're charismatic. Because you believe in the giftings, the graces, if you will. They're actually the graces of God. Uh, here's what it says in Verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. I'm going to repeat that again. Think about the implication. Each one should should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Now, remember, the word gift is charisma. It's the word grace. So when we say grace there, we can actually sort of translate it this way. Each one should use whatever grace he has received, whatever grace or gifts by grace he has received. And by the way, when you receive a gift, you generally don't pay for it. The very definition of a gift is that you've done nothing to deserve it. (laughs) Each one should use whatever graces, whatever gifts he has received to serve others. Notice, faithfully administering God's grace, that is that gift that you've received, in its various forms. So what you have received, you deliver to others. That which God has given you, he's given you for others. Okay? Now, if you understand that about spiritual gifts, it changes the whole thing, the whole ball game. Why am I called to the ministry? To drive a Rolls-Royce? Well, I don't drive a Rolls-Royce. I, I drive a Buick, to be honest. Um. I got involved in ministry to, to to follow God's command and to serve others and to be a blessing to others. That, that's why God has gifted me with the gifts he's given me. You've all been gifted in some way. Are you using the gifts that you've received to serve others? That's the only question you really need to answer. And if not, why not? As I look at this, and there's some things I learn here, we need to be others-focused when using our spiritual gifts. Even the gift of healing is not about the person used by God to heal. It's about healing the person that's sick. Isn't it amazing? Oh, brother so-and-so has the gift of healing. Oh, I didn't know he was sick. No, no, he has the ability to heal others. Really? Because what I read in the scripture says God heals others through people. So the gift is actually given to the person who is sick. Oh, what about the person that was used? Well, maybe they had the gift of faith. They were used by God to serve someone else. But when's the last time you made a big deal out of that? It's really more about what God did for the needy. It's about others. Each one of us is called. Each one of us is called to share God's grace when using our spiritual gifts. See, everything's done in love, the love we've already talked about. Each of us has received spiritual gifts in order to serve others. It's that, that is the reason they're given. Now, this is, this is interesting. I, I happen to love language. And the Greek word for administering, where it says administer God's grace, is a Greek word that means the manager of a household or of household affairs. The manager of a household or household affairs. So when we say each one should faithfully administer God's grace, you're to do so as someone who's charged with the responsibility of that type of administration. It refers to a steward. We talk about the steward, the good steward in in the parables Jesus shared. A, A manager, a superintendent, whether they were slave or free, there were people that were given the responsibility over the affairs of a household. This was one to whom the head of the household entrusted all of his affairs. He was responsible for receipts and expenditures. He distributed proper portions to every servant. He was one who managed farms or estates and supervised the finances of a city or the treasurer of a king. That's what we're talking about. A manager. They sometimes call uh, a mayor a city manager. That's probably a better term. It's someone who manages a city. Well, this is what we're talking about when we talk about this level of administration. Now, what's interesting about a manager like this, a steward, if you will, is that that steward knows that none of the things that he manages belong to him. Someone needs to tell our politicians. That none of the things, none of the money they manage, none of the things they manage... None of the communities, nothing they manage belongs to them. And this steward knows this. He knows that all that he manages belongs to his master to whom he must give an account. He must act on his master's behalf, serving his interest, not his own. That's why we generally call it a servant of the people. But let's be honest, we see it very rarely anymore. And in the church... We sometimes, unfortunately all too often, find people that are serving themselves and using their gifts to merchandise others. Makes me sick. I know it makes Jesus sick. I know that. You know how I know that? Because in the book of Revelation, when he talks about the church of Laodicea, when he talks about those that uh, are not where they're supposed to be, (laughs) those that are lukewarm, he says, I would throw you up. I'd vomit you out of my mouth. I wish you were cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. And that's exactly his reaction. He's, it makes him sick. Nauseous, if you will. Makes me nauseous, too. Well, that's, that's the state of the church, unfortunately, in our world today. Many churches. Not all. Certainly not all. But a steward knows that none of these things belong to him. A steward knows what he's supposed to do, how he's supposed to act, and that he's acting on his master's behalf and that it's not about him Do you? Do we? Is that how we're using our spiritual gifts? For others? The satisfaction comes in being used by God to bless others. Now, we've already established we need to be others-focused when using our spiritual gifts. But it's not just being others-focused, it's being God-centered. See, I think we need to be God-centered, others-focused. Being God-centered when using our spiritual gifts means that everything we do brings glory to God. Not glory to yourself, See, a lot of people think if they're gifted, and even if it's not spiritual gifts, it can be just natural giftings like athletics, intelligence, just natural giftings. You're good at something. That God has given you those gifts to bring attention to yourself. It's all about you. I'm a really good athlete. I'm a very good actor. I'm a wonderful speaker. And, you know, that tends to um, really, really, destroy the gift in many ways, because if God has gifted you and you're God-centered with that spiritual gift, or any gift for that matter, you bring glory to God. And here's what we learn. Look at verse 11, last verse we're going to look at tonight. If anyone speaks, now it's speaking of speaking with a gift to speak. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ to him be the glory and the power forever and ever amen so now we've talked about the fact that we need to be others focused when using our spiritual gifts now we're seeing that we also need to be god centered those who are called to speak those who are called to speak must speak carefully i already shared this with you i'm asking for god's grace and mercy and direction to make sure that i do that Especially in these desperate, dark days in which we live. Those who are called to speak must speak carefully according to God's word, according to James chapter 3, verse 1. Those that teach God's word must never speak for themselves. Not many are called to teach God's word within the church, that's clear. Generally, there's more people in the pews than at the pulpit, right? Would you agree? No one should ever teach God's word unless they're called by God to do so that's always a brutal experience. A man who is called to speak must first learn to control his tongue. Men and women, if you're going to open up your mouth, God has to give you the ability to control your tongue. So when we talk about this spiritual gift, and two are really mentioned here, if anyone speaks, now that's a gift of communication. But it's used to teach God's word, to preach the gospel, to encourage others, to speak on God's behalf, maybe even prophesy. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. That doesn't mean that you have to speak the words of God, but you should speak as one speaking the very words of God. Carefully, circumspectly, speaking in a way that honors God, speaking things that are true from God's word. Not offering your own opinions or speculations as truth. Occasionally I will speculate and I say this is probably my speculation or I'll say I, I feel or believe. But at the end of the day, when I'm speaking, I have to speak as if I'm speaking the word of God. And actually the easiest way to do that is just speak the word of God. <laughs> but that's a gifting. That's a calling. God has to equip you to do that. Uh, There is a greater accountability for those of us that speak in the church. I mean, we're going to be judged by God for what we teach. We are. That's why I listen back to every single message I teach within a week of teaching it. So I can note if I failed to be the person God has called me to be so that I can either apologize or retract something that I've said. And there have been occasions, but they're very rare because I generally, look, I write down what I'm going to say, not word for word. I have notes. Why? Because I don't want to like, add lib. If I do that, I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm going to resort to telling jokes and funny stories. And before you know it, I'm going to be sharing theories. And that's not going to happen. Because God has called me to speak as one who speaks the word of God. So there's a greater accountability. We're going to be judged for what we teach. And we're going to be judged by God and men for the way in which we teach it. And so it's a heavy responsibility, and it has to be bathed in prayer. You know, those who are called to serve, now we talked about those that are called to speak, because some of us are called to speak. That's our ministry. And some of us are called to serve. A lot of people like to speak. Not everybody likes to serve. Uh, I enjoy both very much. In fact, serving is a joy. And even in speaking, I'm hoping to serve. But those who are called to serve must serve in God's strength, not their own. Notice what it said? It said, if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. Well, pastor, are you saying I can't serve in my own strength? Oh, no, you can serve in your own strength. You'll just wear out. You'll just start grumbling and get aggravated, and it's not going to be a whole lot of fun. But if you serve with the strength that God provides, his burden is light, Right? The yoke is, is like, the, the, it's, it's easy. It's, it's not something that's difficult to do because God does it through us. So if you're going to serve, do it with the strength God provides. Not your own strength. You can do it in your own strength for some period of time. I've seen people do ministry in their own strength. And it's like, uh, when I'm training, we do this thing, uh, Tabatas. We do this, these, these bag drills. And you have to do like, 20 seconds, as fast as you can, punch in the bag, kick in the bag, whatever you're doing, right? And it's designed to wear you out. Then you rest for 10 seconds, and then you go at it again. And you know what you learn? You learn in that moment that it really is easy to run out of gas. Uh, They tell us in the the midst of a a fight, if you're in a situation, because I study martial arts, if if you're in a situation, surviving the first 20 seconds is everything. You run out of gas in those first 20 seconds, you're done. So we train so that those 20 seconds don't wear us out. It's about endurance, okay? Now, why am I saying that? Because that's training for a martial art. I'm talking about serving God here. That's just an an example to make a point. If you think that you can just keep at it in ministry, serving people and serving God and doing all those things, you're not even going to make it 20 seconds, you're going to wear yourself out and you're going to be resentful and eventually you're just going to quit or stop coming to church. So you can't serve in your own strength. You have to serve in the strength that God gives you. If he's called you to service, which is a gift in the church, actually it incorporates many different types of gifts. These are more categories of gifts. The speaking gifts, the serving gifts. But all of them require God's strength, God's anointing. So what I'm saying is, you and I, we cannot rely on our own strength or our own ability to speak. We rely on God and his gifting, his grace. This will ensure that God will be praised in all things, and not you. This will ensure that Jesus Christ will receive all the glory and you none. And this will ensure that others will acknowledge his infinite power forever. That's what we just read. Listen, God provides everything that is necessary for us to serve him according to his will. He does. If what you're going through is easy, it means that God has anointed you to get through it. If what you're going through is hard, but you're still getting through it, it means that God has equipped you to deal with difficult things. But everything we go through is impossible without him. Ministry is not difficult. It's impossible. Serving others isn't difficult. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, I'll just leave you with this thought, and I like this thought. So, as we read there that we should serve with the strength God provides, why? So that God may be praised in all things uh, through Jesus Christ. And we also read, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Uh, I I realize this, that the word for provide there, a lot of interesting Greek, words here in this section. And I'm not giving you the Greek because it's all Greek to you anyway. The Greek word for provide is the word that means a chorus leader. A chorus leader leads a group of singers. You ever seen a chorus leader, like a conductor, but for singers? That's the word that's used for provide. And what's interesting is it also means to furnish the chorus because a chorus leader was supposed to provide all of the singers with everything they needed to sing. So maybe they had, you know, the little water and their music and their robes and everything they need to do what the chorus leader has called them to do. It's his responsibility as the chorus leader to provide for the chorus everything they need. And this was done at the expense of the chorus leader. He paid the bill. But you know what happened? When the performance was given, his investment resulted in him receiving all the praise. No one looked at the singers and said, oh, those singers are wonderful. They looked at the chorus leader and they say, my, what a wonderful performance. The one who got the credit was the chorus leader. I think you see the analogy and why it's the strength that God provides. He's the chorus leader. And you know, it's also interesting. The same Greek word is used concerning charitable giving. When God provides, he provides in this way for his own glory. When we provide, when we give to others, we do it with the same intent. To God be all the glory. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this study as it encourages us to do the things we know we're called to do and to do so for your glory. Now, Lord, if we're called to speak or we're called to serve or whatever you've called us to do, may we do so with your strength and your provision. And may you receive all the glory for everything you do through us. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.